Well, good morning. Welcome to Central Presbyterian Church, where we seek the transformation of our lives, our community, and the world through the renewing work of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. My name is Charles Godwin. I am one of the pastors here. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Life by Design. It's a series we actually began last fall, looking at how we were created to grow. Well, last week, Pastor Clay introduced part two of this series, in which we are studying the Ten Commandments, a succinct summary of God's law that he lovingly gives his people to help us live in freedom and flourishing. Pastor Clay reminded us last week as we looked at the prologue to the commandments that our creator is our liberator. He sets us free from the bondage of sin and brokenness in Christ. And that liberator is our gracious law giver. I heard someone say it this way. The commandments are given to you that you can enjoy your liberation. Think about it if you had no traffic laws. You lose your liberty when you try to go out and get anywhere. God is not going to set you free in Christ only to put you under a law that will prohibit your wholeness and flourishing. The law, this law, is going to advance your liberty. So keeping that before us, we are going to dive in today and we're going to study the first commandment. Let me pray for us and then we'll read the scriptures. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work the word in and through us this morning, that you would soften our hearts and you would help us not to harden our hearts, and you would help us to see Jesus and see him clearly. And we pray in his name. Amen. Our scripture today is Exodus 20. We'll read the first three verses of this chapter, and you can find that on page 61 of your pew Bibles. This is God's word. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We're going to begin today by looking at the context of this commandment. God had just liberated his people from years of captivity in Egypt, which as a culture worshipped many gods. And sadly, over those years of captivity, many of God's people had taken up that same practice. As we look at the scriptures, this commandment is something we as God people have to be reminded of repeatedly. Moses didn't just remind them this one time at Mount Sinai when he gave the commandments. In fact, a little bit later in the scriptures, Joshua reminded them when he renewed the covenant, put away the gods that your father served in Egypt and serve the Lord Yahweh. Choose this day whom you will serve. On Mount Carmel, Elijah confronts the Israelites on their worship of Baal. And God forgives them and liberates them by raining down a fire upon an offering, something that their non-existent fake God Baal could do. And in the New Testament, Jesus says no one can serve two masters. 
And the Apostle John in one of his epistles says, faith in Jesus overcomes the world, but he concludes this letter by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. When God says in our text, you shall have no other gods before me, he is speaking to his people, to us in the singular. We worship the only God, and he delights and desires to have a relationship with you. The words before me, they actually mean before my face. One scholar commented, in that case, the commandment would mean something like this. You shall have no other gods in front of me. You shall have no other gods in my presence. Our God is not to be worshipped and trusted as one among many gods. We don't all serve the same God and just call him different names. God, our creator, Our liberator and our lawgiver is to be worshipped and trusted as the only real, true, living God, the God of salvation. Remember, remember this, our liberator is our gracious lawgiver. These words are given to people, to us, rescued from bondage, from sin, and they are meant to establish us in freedom, not bondage. So as we think about the first commandment, we may think, I don't put other gods before God. I don't worship cows or frogs. I don't worship Baal. What other gods do I put before God? Me, my comfort, my success, my reputation, my security, my kids and their well-being, and the list could go on and on. John Calvin writes, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Martin Luther said it this way, every sin in some way is a breaking of the first commandment. And who here does not sin? This sermon could take years. Don't worry, it's not going to. (laughs) I heard a pastor say, we may think we are far more sophisticated than our Old Testament counterparts. We no longer believe in such antiquated notions. Yet despite modern advancements, we are still as idolatrous as ever, and we worship all sort of things. We break this commandment, friends, just as much as our Old Testament counterparts. Remember, our creator is our liberator. He gives us his law of freedom, so you shall have no other gods before him. Three points today. First, we're going to try to define idolatry or other gods. And then we'll look at why idolatry is a problem for us, what it does to us. And last, we'll consider where it is a problem in our lives and how we might push back against it. So let's try to land the plane on a defining idolatry. This is important for us because we have seen it is a significant problem for God's people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and for us. In Romans 1, Paul defines it as exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. The Heidelberg Catechism defines it in this way. Idolatry is instead of the one true God who has revealed himself in his word or beside him to conceive or have something else on which to place our trust. So an idol is anything on which we place our trust besides our God. 
It can also be, as some scholars have noted, worshiping something other than God as if that thing were God. We have surface sins, right? Like anger, envy, greed, gossip, lust. But what's under that? What's driving those sins? Robert Thune writes this. He says, underneath every external sin is a heart idol, a false God that has eclipsed the true God in our thoughts or affections. Idols can be good things. They can be things like knowledge or success or truth or health. But when we take those things and we make them ultimate things, they become idols. They become other gods and they can enslave you completely. I read a quote from a pastor this week. He said, I think God hates idolatry for the same reason I hate dementia. It makes people I love forget who I am. That's why it's so important for us to understand what our other gods are and how powerful they are. You can make an idol out of almost anything. We've already mentioned knowledge, success, health, comfort, reputation, security. The list could go on. Approval, control, pleasure, recognition, respect, desire for power, tradition, a certain political view. One writer said it this way, the heart can become so addicted to anything in our homes, from attic to cellar, in cupboards and drawers, in our yards, in our eating, clothing and hobbies, each of these things can be absolutized in ways both uncultured and in ways that seem very refined. Everyday common things can get a person in their grasp. Whether it's money, power, your appetites, addictions, the world is full of God substitutes and God additives, things that take the place of God in daily life. The reason we have trouble recognizing our own private idolatries is not because we don't have any false gods anymore but it's because we have so many. And because we are fallen, sinful, broken people, making idols is completely natural to our hearts. As Calvin reminded us when he said, the heart, the human heart, is a perpetual idol factory. So that brings us to our second point, and it's this. Why is idolatry a significant problem for us, or what does it do to us? You may answer, Charles, you just told us our real problem is our hearts. But I want us to consider what it does to us. As I was studying this week, I was reminded of an illustration of what terrible things putting other gods before the true God does to us. And that illustration comes to us from the scriptures. It's the story of the downfall of a great king, King Solomon. He started out well. He asked God for wisdom, but he ends up serving the very gods he rejected. In time, he started serving the God of wealth. He began to serve the God of power, the God of military strength. And then he made the same mistake when it came to women. God said the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And yet he did not heed that warning either. All the while, he began falling after other gods until he finally even bowed down to blocks of wood and stone. And God punished Solomon by tearing apart his kingdom, but that was not the real tragedy. Philip Ryken, president of Wheaton College, comments, the real tragedy was not the punishment but the sin itself. 
the sin of breaking the first commandment. Solomon discovered to his own dismay how empty life is for those who follow other gods. This is what happens to everyone who breaks the first commandment. In the end, of course, those who follow other gods will be judged for their sins like Solomon, but emptiness and despair come along before judgment. The desire to have more and more is insatiable, and the same thing happens to us. Although we never intend to break the first commandment, Our hearts are lured away by the temptation to follow other gods. Poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a poem entitled Idols. Listen to what she writes. How weak the gods of this world are, and weaker yet their worship made me. Weaker yet their worship made me. What are those things you are worshiping? as other gods, and they're making you weaker and weaker and bringing you emptiness and despair. Your spouse to change? A better job? Better health? More money? Children that are successful? That you won't be lonely? Or you'll have certain people that like you? I've shared this with you before. A pastor friend of mine says, we can worship everything but Christ. We can worship our work, our family, our romance, our disciplines, our exercise, our music, everything but Christ, and we are not satisfied. You can have all of these things, and they do not satisfy what Blaise Pascal identified as the indelible, God-shaped hole or vacuum within every fallen human being. Only Jesus satisfies. Eugene Peterson said it this way, the law of God is the grain of the universe. If you go against the grain of the universe, you are going to get splinters. And a pastor friend of mine said it this way, you disregard gravity, you're going to break some bones. You disregard God, you are going to break your life. These built-in consequences of misery are a compassionate thing. Why is idolatry a significant problem for us? God demands for us to have no other gods before him. And committing to this brings us our greatest freedom. But when we serve idols, we will suffer emptiness, despair, and bondage being ruled by them. So we've defined idolatry. We've talked about what it does to us. Let's take just a few minutes now and look where it is a problem in our lives and how we might push back against it. How do we discover where we have other gods before the true God, where idolatry is a problem in our lives? There's a great little study called The Gospel-Centered Life. I would recommend it to you. Get together with some friends, go through it. There are some great questions and comments there, though, that I, help us, that I think help us think about where idolatry is a problem in our lives. So I'm going to try to synthesize a few of these for us so that hopefully we can begin this process. It's really a lifelong process of identifying other gods. One question this study gives us is this, what do we love? What do we love? Or breaking it down a little bit more, what do we desire? What do we think we need in order to be happy when our mind is free to roam? What do we think about? How do we spend our money? What do we get excited about? 
Early Christian scholar Origen wrote, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. Friends, a false God, it can be a good thing. Something, though, that we focus on to the exclusion of God. We've named a bunch of them. It could be sports. It could be your hobbies. It could be a personal interest. It could be an appetite for the finer things in life. It could be a career ambition, your personal health or fitness. It could be ministry in the church. We're allowed to enjoy the good things of life, but we must not allow them to replace God as the object of our affections. Another good question from this study is this, what do we trust Again, breaking that down a little bit more, where do we turn in times of trouble? Martin Luther writes, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. And Puritan Thomas Watson said, to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. So what do you trust when you're in trouble, when you're lonely, when you're discouraged? Do you count on drugs? Alcohol, sex, shopping, or some other obsession to pull you through. Others trust things that are good in and of themselves, but they have a way of replacing our confidence in God. Jobs, insurance policies, pension plans, government and its control of the economy, family, social position, science, and medicine. God can use every one of those things to take care of us and provide for us. He does. But if we place our ultimate confidence in them, rather than him alone, that's idolatry. Another question, what do I fear? Or what makes me panic if it is threatened? Friends, once you begin to get answers to these questions, then it begs the question, How do I push back against them? The Apostle Paul encourages us in this way. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then he writes this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. In the prologue that we studied last week, we are reminded of our liberator who rescues us from bondage and gives us these laws to establish us in freedom. And when we remember that truth, our liberator rescues us from bondage and gives us these laws to establish us in freedom, we are given what Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. Renewed love for God by reminding ourselves of his unmeasured love for us in Christ expels the idols in our lives and puts God back in the primary place in our hearts and lives. It is that act of regular covenant renewal that we see over and over in the scriptures. One scholar commented, idols may be the greatest threat to our devotion to God, But listen to this, nothing is a greater threat to our idols than God's devotion to us. Isn't that good? Idols don't care about us. 
They can't even give us what we hope to get for them. But God in Christ has proved how much he loves us and how devoted to us he is. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are guilty of making selfish sacrifices to idols, but through faith we are forgiven because God in Christ loved us enough to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Steve Childers, he writes for Desiring God Ministries. He's CEO of an organization that was formerly known as Global Church Advancement. It's now known as Pathway Learning. He helped me to think a little bit more granular about this process of pushing back against idols. He talks about identifying respect as a dominant idol in his life, and he said it drives him to gossip. So this idol of respect, he said, drives him to gossip. But then he says this, after I acknowledge my sin and repent of it, I exercise faith in two ways. Listen to this. First, here's this covenant renewal. I pause and worship Jesus because he laid aside his right to be respected, becoming humble to the point of death on a cross for me. And second, I remind myself of the gospel truth that I no longer need to crave the respect of others because I have the full approval of God through faith in Jesus. Whether people respect me or not is immaterial. God's grace has freed me from demanding my own respect. And now I live for the fame and honor of Jesus. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to take some time this week and beyond to do this work of covenant renewal related to your other gods. You will find it transformational as you are renewed in Christ. That's our vision statement right there. Take time to look at your sin patterns and ask what idols might be driving them. But then speak the truth to your heart about And praise Jesus for his victory over your idol. And as Dr. Childers modeled, remember gospel truths that by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you will displace the idols on the throne of your heart and put God in the primary place where he belongs. It's challenging work. But friends, God is for you. And he is with you. And he's given you a community To help you do this work also, one writer said, you can't see your own face. We need each other in order to see our sin clearly and deal with it honestly. Our Savior Jesus invites you, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take my law upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In a moment, we will sing these words, and I want to read them to you now. Though the world and many idols all demand my loyalty, clamor for my heart's allegiance, mock my faithless piety, God, my Father, my Creator, sought to ransom back His own, paid the price for my rebellion, made me His by grace alone. Brothers and sisters, you can trust your liberator. God, who has rescued you from your sin and brokenness by sending His Son, Jesus, 
who has lived the perfect life you cannot live. He has died the death you deserve on a cross by paying the penalty for sins once for all. He has been raised from the dead, conquering the stranglehold of sin and brokenness on you and this world. He has ascended into heaven where he now intercedes for you. And he will come again to dwell with you on a renewed world, at which point all of your sins, including having other gods, your brokenness and death itself will be no more. You can obey his good and gracious commands that he has given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. And in doing so, you will find great freedom as you live life by God's design. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we asked earlier that you would soften our hearts and help us to see Jesus. Please continue to do that work in us. Please, Holy Spirit, help us to identify our idols and to push back against them with the gospel truths that you liberate us and love us and help us to live in freedom and flourishing as we live under and in your law. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.